Well, if you have your handout there, we're going to read this morning uh, from 1 Timothy chapter 3 as the, the main passage we're going to look at together this morning. And if you've uh, been tracking with us, uh, we are spending the month of January uh, looking at the topic of church leadership. And uh, the reason for that is next week we have our a congregation, or this Wednesday, a congregational meeting. And a part of that meeting will be we will um, open up a season of nominations for church office, uh, both for the office of elder and the office of deacon. And so far, we've looked at Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, we did that to see and to anchor our whole discussion about this topic in the idea that Jesus is the giver of gifts. And that includes the topic of church officers. And then we looked at, from 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, what that, that passage has to say about the qualifications and identity of an elder or an overseer. And last week we looked at the same with respect to the office of deacon. And this week we're going to look at the topic of whether or not church office is open to women. And I mentioned this last week. We're going to dive into the gender question this morning. And um, if you're nervous, you can rest assured I'm nervous. Um, but yeah, I thought you'd chuckle at that a little more than that. Um, at any rate, <laughs> what I want to do is I have in your, in your worship folder there a passage from Acts chapter 6, which we touched on last week as well. First uh, Timothy 3, 1 through 13, and then also Romans chapter 16, verse 1. And you'll notice that there are some words underlined there that um, I, I underlined just for the sake of ease for you as we talk this morning, but I'm only going to read from First Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 13, because I'm really using that passage as our, our primary uh, point of entry into this topic. Uh, though there are a many number of ways that you could enter into this topic and it would be as fruitful and uh, interesting as well. So, let's read together. Uh, I will read from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, begin at verse 1. Feel free to follow along or just listen. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, 
faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so here's the question for us this morning. Are these offices open to women and men or to men only? And uh, obviously this is a big topic, not only in terms of its complexity, uh, particularly in our current cultural moment, but just in terms of its bearing on our own lives, that it is, um, I think, fair to say that this is a sensitive and emotional topic, and I mean that in a very good way. It ought to be. And it has very significant practical implications for the life of the church. And so, uh, I am, as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of a piece of advice I once got, pastoral advice, and someone said to me that the key to pastoring is learning how to disappoint people at a rate they can handle. Uh, So I may disappoint you this morning uh, in various ways, uh, either by what I say or what I don't say, um, but I I trust that you can handle, handle it and at the rate that I try to do it. So, um, and I also want to recognize that I'm going to give it my best shot to be clear, uh, to be fair to the Scriptures, and yet I recognize that, that um, I stand up here as a man talking about this topic, and I think it would be easy uh, to, in my position to treat this topic like a purely academic exercise. Because in one sense, um, to put it bluntly, the outcome doesn't affect my life. But if you're a woman, it does. It impacts, it affects your life. And I would even say, it affects every man's life in here. Because simply because you're a man doesn't mean you're qualified for office. Though some might make you think that sometimes. You might feel like that sometimes. So my hope here is that as we work through this, I understand and I feel my own disadvantage, and I, I, and I, I am sympathetic to perhaps some of you who feel like, well, that's fine. You're, you're a man. You can stand up there and say whatever you want, but this is deeply personal to me. And all I really want you to hear me say on the front end is, to the degree which I can, I'm, I am aware of that, and I understand that. And I hope to honor you and dignify you in in everything that I I say this morning. And along with that, you should know that you do not have to agree. You don't have to agree with me. Uh, You don't even have to agree with Red Mountain's position on, on a topic like this to be at Red Mountain Church. Every time I sit down with somebody to have a membership interview, I I take great pains to explain to them all that is required for church membership is faith in Jesus Christ and your understanding that that faith in Christ can't be lived in isolation, that you need other people and that you think you need to be a part of a body like this and you're willing to do that. I don't ask you what are your particular theological views on certain topics. Because the scriptures say all that's required to be a Christian 
is to repent and believe in Jesus. So, here's how I want to go about this. Uh, I got three points for you this morning. The first, I want to lay out for us a, a gender framework is what I'm calling it. Second, we're going to look at one interpretive question, which comes right out of 1 Timothy 3, verse 11. And then we're going to finish with, uh, how do we keep the main thing the main thing? So a gender framework, one interpretive question, and keeping the main thing the main thing. All right? So let's start out with the gender framework. And I'm going to come at this from uh, three angles. A cultural angle, a theological angle, and then a scriptural angle, okay? Cultural, theological, scriptural. And that's going to provide us for uh, some semblance of a framework here. First of all, how about a cultural angle on this? I, I would contend that there are two prominent views on the topic of gender and the Bible that miss the biblical picture. And again, this is a general observation. The first view would argue that submission and equality cannot coexist, that they are diametrically opposed, that to believe in submission means the person in authority and the person who is not in authority, that there is a fundamental uh, lack of equality between those two people. That those two things, submission and, and equality, cannot coexist. That's, that's one approach. And uh, that tends to be a more common view in our, in our modern moment. Uh, particularly even some within the church would tend to make that case. But here's another view. And I think this would be a fair, uh, we could call this more of a traditional outlook. And I think that in some ways, uh, particularly in the PCA... Uh, this is not an uncommon viewpoint. And I want to differentiate what we're doing this morning from both of these, but especially this one. That the second view would be that submission assumes inequality. So the first one is submission and inequality cannot be compatible. The second one is that submission assumes inequality. Okay? Those are two big cultural viewpoints. What about a theological vantage point here? Well, let's look here for a moment and kind of get our bearings. How are we supposed to think about men and women in light of the Bible? Huge question. And I can barely scratch the surface, but I'm going to try to. First of all, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Going back to the very beginning, God says, He created man after his own image. Male and female, he created them. That is a fundamental starting point for everything that comes after it in all of the Bible. That God created man, male and female, equal but different. Both created in God's image with his dignity imparted to them. And yet they're different. And that is not an accident. That's not a bad thing. That's by God's design and intention. And it was through Adam and Eve and their descendants that the whole world was going to flourish. And yet, in, in not too much time, we discover in chapter 3 that 
sin enters into the picture. And what happens to this equal but different relationship? Blame shifting enters in. Power dynamics enter in. Conflict enters in. Manipulation enters in. And so now, the conflicts and disagreements and power dynamics and manipulations that we experience in relationship with one another, not just between men and women, but men and men, women and women, but particularly between men and women, it shot through with this problem called sin. And yet, though, in light of the gospel, there is hope. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 11 and 12, here's what Paul says. He says, in the Lord, and that is, that is to say, in relationship with Jesus, in light of the gospel, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So here's where we are. God created man and woman in his own image, equal but different. Sin has ruined that in original design and intention. And yet, in light of the gospel, what we see, there is a mutual interdependence between men and women that the gospel brings into a broken world, and particularly into the unique life that we enjoy as God's people in the church. Now, what do we do, though, with a passage like 1 Timothy 2, which is uh, a few verses before the passage we were looking at in 1 Timothy 3, where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to ex exercise authority over a man. Now, some would suggest that that verse applies to every arena of life. And I can't stress enough that I do not think that's what the Bible teaches. And here's why. Because that passage occurs in a letter specifically intended to help God's people learn how to behave and live together within the church. Now, you still want like, not like what Paul says. That's fine. We're, 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 that's what we're here to wrestle with. But I just want to make the point that Paul is not talking about every arena of life. He's giving us instructions here about life in the church. So here's a question. If we go along with Paul and, and we're going to follow his teaching here, how do we wrestle with this? Well, let me point out just one passage from 1 Corinthians 11. Again, this is verse 3. And Paul says this. He says, The head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, what does it mean when Paul says that the head of the woman is man? In order to answer that, we need to see there are a number of things said in this passage that have to interpret what that means. First of all, notice where it says, Christ is the head of every man. Now here, Paul is saying that Jesus Christ is a head. What does that mean? In the ancient Near East, uh, both biblical literature and non-biblical literature, that term head almost always carries with it 
the sense of authority. Now, here's the question. It carries the sense of authority, which would imply someone who's not in authority, which we would call submission, someone who is submitting, yielding to the one in authority. Here's the question, though. How does Jesus express his authority? And what we discover is that Jesus expresses his authority through sacrificial service. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Jesus says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. According to Jesus and the Bible, to be ahead means that Jesus, he did not please himself, but what? He came to please others, to serve others. And I can't stress this part enough. What this means is that a head's job in the church, someone in a position of authority, their job is to use their authority to please, to meet the needs of others, and to serve others. So that's Christ is the head of every man. Now, that teaches us what it means to be a head and what kind of authority we're talking about. But what about when it says that the head of Christ is God? What that means is that, well, here's what it can't mean, is that Christ is somehow inferior to the Father because he is in a position of submitting to the Father. If, if God is the head of Jesus... It can't mean that Jesus is, un, is unequal or inferior to the Father. Why? Because Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in power and glory and dignity. And therefore, according to the Bible, headship, authority, does not mean that there is inequality between the one who has authority and the one who does not. Furthermore, if we're following what Paul's saying here and we're digging into what this means about God is the head of Christ, think about what we read in Philippians chapter 2, where what we read is that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. What this also means is authority must be given. Think of it like this. Submission cannot be coerced or demanded, and authority must be given over. Take the example of a husband and a wife. If a wife decides to marry a man and they enter into this marriage relationship, can the husband demand her submission? I suppose he could, and he'd be a terrible husband. How that relationship works is that each of them, but in this case, let's think of it like this, the woman says, you know what? I think you are a head worth following. And I will hand over authority to you. 
I will entrust myself to you. We do this all the time. Once you start thinking about it, particularly when it comes to coming in contact with experts of various kinds, like, yeah, sure, I will trust your authority. I will yield to you and receive from you the good things you have for me. All right, so there we have a cultural, a theological, now scriptural. I want, us to, I want to say up front that Red Mountain Church as a church has always been and Lord willing always will be committed to the scriptures is God's word written. And that, that would be, and, and that is true even when we come across passages and topics and themes that grate against our sensibilities that we really don't like and make us uncomfortable. If I could put it like this, you know, topics like this, it would be a lot easier for me to say, yeah, I, we, I, that's just, you know, Paul got it wrong. Um, we're past that. That would make my job a lot easier in some ways. However, I can't do that if I believe that the scriptures really are God's word and his word is always good, even when it grates against my sensibilities. Second, I want to give us a couple interpretive uh, guides as we move towards looking at this one interpretive situation in 1 Timothy 3. First of all, how, do, how should you approach questions and topics in the Bible that are difficult? Uh, particularly when maybe more than one passage says something and it may seem like it says um, apparently contradictory things. Here's a couple thoughts on this. First of all, you have to pay attention to the context. You have to pay attention to the very immediate context, what's closest to that passage in that paragraph, and then begin to move out from that, maybe to that chapter, and then maybe even a little bit more to the book as a whole, and then maybe to the that section in the Bible where it's located, like the New Testament, and then eventually asking questions that would take you to the whole story of the Bible. Context. Second, literary features. So, for example, we'll see this in a moment, because we're going to look at Romans 16, which is the very end of Paul's letter to, to, to Rome. And it's a list of greetings, of goodbyes, and introductions and now also we're going to look at 1 Timothy 3, which is a very explicit letter about directions of how the church should operate. How do those different literary features guide us in how we read each passage? Which brings me to the third guide, which is Scripture must interpret Scripture. When we come up against questions that, that we either don't quite understand or that are confusing, we have to ask, well, where else does the Bible talk about this? And how do we compare them? And there's no way around that. We have to wrestle with it and debate about it and see what it says and be humble enough to admit, oh, man, I, I missed that. That's a great point. I wonder how we should sort that out in light of what the Scriptures say. So let's take a look then at 1 Timothy 3. If you have your worship folder there, pull it out. Look at verse 11. And here's the doorway we're going to walk through. Verse 11 says, Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, uh, as I think most of you may know, the New Testament was written in Greek. And uh, translation is often slippery. Uh, it, it's, it's not like paint by number. <laughs> 
You know, you can't just say, oh, there's that Greek word, and that means this English word. Translation is, is a complicated endeavor, and here's why. Because that word translated there in verse 11, wives, can be translated as women or wives. It can mean both. And there's no way to decide that just by knowing that word is used. You have to look at the broader context. So how do we do that? First, I want us to think about this. In 1 Timothy 3, and even uh, in the broader letter of, of 1 Timothy, as well as in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul repeatedly refers to the church as the household of God. In other words, Paul takes the metaphor of the home and home life and applies it to the life of the church. And we saw this specifically the last two weeks when we were looking at the qualifications for elder and deacon. In both cases, Paul talks about household management. He talks about marriage. He talks about parenting as directly relevant to the fitness of an officer to lead well and rule well in God's house. So, I want to look at one aspect of this, particularly the aspect of marriage. If officers are to treat God's people with marriage-like fidelity, if they are to love God's people like that, how are God's people to view themselves with respect to the officers? And we're going to talk about this more next week, but I, I want to talk about it now just for a moment and take you back to when, when God gave Eve to Adam. What did he say? God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And I fear and think that for many, many people, particularly in traditional branches of the church, read that word helper as denoting a sense of inferiority or weakness. And I want you to hear me on this. Who is the subject of that verb helper most often in the Bible? The subject of that word helper in the Bible most often is God. God is our helper. God is not inferior or weak. To be a helper according to the Bible means that you are someone who can help because you are stronger than the one being helped. Here's what I want you to hear about that with respect to church office. Officers in the church need to see both men and women as helpers in this sense. Specifically women. And my question for myself and for us as a church is, how well are we doing that? Well, what about women serving in church office? Well, let's look first of all quickly at how do women feature in the New Testament. 
First of all, Paul, time and again, in his letters, mentions women who are fellow workers in the gospel with him, like Yodia and Syntyche in the end of Philippians, or Priscilla and Aquila, a couple serving uh, that Paul mentions in Romans 16. And in Luke chapter 3 and Matthew 27, we read about women who followed Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry, all the way through his death and even to his resurrection who followed him and served with him and his apostles and even cared for them out of their own resources. Second, within this this context, how do we see women serving in church office? First of all, let's quickly think about the idea of the elder. Now, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail, partly because this one is uh, not quite as controversial although it can be depending on on your vantage point, but the New Testament teaching doesn't leave this office open to women. That's when we listen and read the New Testament, in terms of the structure and organization of the church, women are not permitted to teach or exercise authority. And I would also say, as I did already, that not every man in the church is qualified to teach and exercise authority as well. And think about this in terms of an analogy for a moment. The women, though though women accompanied Jesus throughout his ministry, he appointed only men to be his apostles and to be his witnesses to him and his ministry. But I don't want you to miss that who were the very first people to tell the apostles that Jesus had risen from the dead? It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women who first told the apostles that Jesus was alive. So, what about this question of the deacon? We're looking here at this passage from 1 Timothy chapter 3, and this translation of the word that in in your handout says wives, but could also mean women. What would be a basic argument for translating this as women, meaning women deacons. The the term here can't mean women in general. It is talking about a specific role, whether it be the wives of deacons or women deacons. And those who would make the case that this is really talking about women deacons uh, would include some of these and and more. And they probably would do better at this than I am, but I want to do justice to both viewpoints here as best I can. In verse 8... It begins deacons. Verse 11 says, I'm going to translate wives there, women, for a moment. It says, women, likewise. And and part of the argument is that that term likewise implies that these are two separate groups, that there are male deacons, verses 8 through 10, and verse 11 introduces female deacons because of that term likewise. But second... They also note that in the original, the the possessive pronoun there in verse 11, that's actually not in the original. That has to be supplied based on contextual factors. And it's not there. Uh, Third, this view recognizes that there's no similar description for wives of elders in verses 1 through 7. Why not? It seems like given how similar these qualifications are, it seems conspicuous that Paul wouldn't include something similar 
when, with respect to uh, wives for elders if Paul is talking about wives for deacons here. A fourth detail here is that Paul actually, when he talks about a deacon must be a one-woman man, he must be faithful to his one wife, that actually is moved towards the, the end of the qualifications with respect to deacons, not right at the very beginning in verse 2, as we see with respect to elders. And then, furthermore, when we move to Romans chapter 16, and Paul mentions uh, Phoebe, Paul says, uh, he describes Phoebe as a deacon or a servant of the church in Sancria. And according to this view, it's taken that that term deacon should be read as denoting a, a real office, an official office in the church. Now, what would be the alternative viewpoint? That seeing this word here in verse 11 should be translated as wives. Let's stay in Romans 16 verse 1 here for a moment. And then we'll work backwards. The question is, should this term uh, that is translated servant or deacon, uh, how should you translate that? Not counting Romans 16 for a moment, there, there, there are five times in the New Testament where the term deacon is almost certainly translated or, or denoting a, a formal office. In every other instance in the New Testament, there are, three, there are at least four other possibilities of what that term can mean, other than church office. And it's most often translated as a, a servant or a minister, or someone who's bringing a message to a group of people. And the challenge is, which of those meanings should we read into Romans 16, verse 1? And to answer that question, we need to consider the context, as I said before, the literary features, and then in other New Testament passages. So, how do we make sense of this from Romans 16, verse 1? Is Paul talking about a woman deacon? Or is, is Phoebe an exemplary figure who is being commended and should be honored, but isn't holding formal church office? It's a little difficult from the, from the context to make a definitive case. And when we look at the literary features, again, I'm giving you, this is another viewpoint. Um, that this is a passage in Romans 16 about final greetings. It's a concluding paragraph. Whereas 1 Timothy 3 is self-consciously describing how the church ought to function. And as the argument goes, 1 Timothy 3 ought to be more um, controlling in this discussion than Romans 16. And then the question is, if, the Phoebe, if Phoebe is a, a deacon, here's an interesting thing to note. Romans 16 was written before 1 Timothy. And one of the questions that is asked is, if that's the case, and Paul wanted to include women in the diaconate, why did not he include the term deacon in 1 Timothy 3? with a feminine article, which I'm getting too detailed. You're glazing over. I know that. It's okay. 
One would think that if he was trying to do that, he would have used the same language for Phoebe in Romans 16 in 1 Timothy 3, which he wrote after Romans, in a chapter specifically describing church office. And he doesn't do that. And the meaning here of this term deacon in chapter 3, verse 8, is sometimes, if we're back in 1 Timothy now, that term deacons is sometimes viewed as meaning including both men and women because there isn't a feminine form of deacon, kind of like nurse in the English language. Nurse doesn't denote, is this a man you're talking about or a woman? Deacon functions like that in the Greek language. But as the argument goes, if verse 8, deacons, is referring to both men and women, why does Paul then mention women specifically in verse 11? As the argument goes, it would be redundant. And then the last part of this that I'll mention, and we'll move on, is Acts chapter 6, which we looked at last week. Acts chapter 6, we described as the prototype for deacons. And one of the things we notice in that, in that passage is that the apostles appoint seven men to care for widows. And as this viewpoint goes, if there ever was a good time in the New Testament to appoint women to do a job that really needed women to do it, that was it. And yet what we find is that seven men were appointed to care for the widows. And therefore, this this argument looks at it and says, that makes sense of why verse 11 is talking about wives. The implication is that the wives of deacons would be helping in cases with women and in situations that it wouldn't be as appropriate for men to be involved in intimate details of somebody's life. Now, that's a conjecture. That's an implication, and it should be said. But in in both cases here, what I want you to hear, there are good and godly people who believe the Scriptures and come to different conclusions on this. And there, there are strong arguments in both directions. For me, uh, the idea that the, the, the viewpoint where there, that the scriptures teach women deacons is yet to be proven. And if you don't agree with me, I would love for you to feel like you can come and talk to me about that. And in the PCA, the viewpoint of the denomination has been uh, that the office of elder and deacon is open to men only. And yet, especially with respect to the office of deacon, there is a provision for what we call deacon assistance. And we've even had some here at Red Mountain before. But now I want to try to get us back to, and I know I'm running long, and I beg your uh, forgiveness for that. But I do want to get us back to what's the main thing. I want to get us back to Jesus. And I don't want to do it in a trite way. I want to do it in a way that is actually according to how the Bible describes it. And I want to do it by asking the question, so then what can women do? Women should be allowed and encouraged and and celebrated to do everything in the church any non-ordained man can do. Now, some of you might feel like that doesn't go far enough. Some of you might feel like, whoa, that's, that's a little dangerous. And I I stand on this. I've been ordained in three different presbyteries, and I've said that publicly 
that many different times. I've been challenged on it, and I stand by that. However, I also want you to hear this, that nowhere does the Bible teach it is an abdication of authority to listen to those who are not in authority. And I'm asking this of myself and our elders and our deacons and to all of you, how good are we at inviting men and women to help our leaders do a better job loving you and reaching our city? I think that's always an important and relevant question. So how do we get back to Jesus here? Remember Jesus, he chose 12 apostles, all of whom were men, and yet no one honored and dignified women more than Jesus. That's why we read from John chapter 4 earlier. And I want to leave you with this in your minds, that authority and submission in the church are intended to give tangible expression to who Jesus is. Authority and submission are ruined in our broader culture. And even in the church, there are bad examples all over the place. But see, the answer to that problem isn't to go and come up with another version of it, apart from the Bible. The answer to that is to go deeper into who Jesus is and what submission looks like through Jesus and what authority looks like through Jesus. That Jesus' authority is self-sacrificial. It's self-denying. It's for the benefit of those you're called to serve. And submission does not mean inferiority or inequality, but out of a willingness to give up power and authority. A willingness to say, I will entrust you to care for me. And therefore, I think this is why Paul says in Ephesians 5.21, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's a statement given to the entire church. And it's said in the context of who Jesus is, out of love for him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this time together. I pray, Father, that um, what is heard uh, will be better than what's said, and that by your Holy Spirit, uh, you would give us eyes to behold Jesus as our, uh, our king and also as the one who gave everything in order that we might be saved. Father, we ask that you would help us as we wrestle with tough questions about how the church uh, is designed and intended to, to function according to your word. And we pray that you would give us grace and uh, a willingness to, to wrestle together in your name. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.